Good morning. Nice to see all of you today. It's good to be here. You know, this morning, I'm gonna, you, so you don't have to guess where we're headed today. I just wanna tell you, kind of shoot you straight from the very beginning. This morning, I wanna look at, at something that the early church held onto and lived out of that allowed them to be a, a living and potent expression of the love of Christ not just in the first century, but in something that allows us all to sit in this room and be a part of that same expression, right? Be that same thing, carrying that same thing today. It's endured for 2,000 years at this point, and that's super powerful. And so there's this quality that they lived out, and I think it's just as powerful for us today as it was for them then. And I think that our circumstances are similar in some ways, and I hope that we see some of that uh, in such a way that empowers you. And it's not just because it's a good quality to hold or not just because an early church held it. It's because so much of this thing is about who God is and his heart. And when you grab a hold of that thing, it becomes a powerful dynamic in a church, but just as much as it is in the collective, in the parts of us as individuals, has the ability to grip our own hearts, move us in a powerful way. And so I wanna talk about that this morning because that's who we seek to be. It's what matters to us. And so you're probably wondering, what is that quality? And I'll tell you later. Right now... <laughs> I want to tell you a story. I, it was a couple of years ago. Uh, I was meeting with this couple, and I didn't know them all that well, and we're sitting down at a coffee shop, and, uh, and I'm getting to know them, and they wanted me to marry them, not for me to be a third person in their marriage, to be an officiant, right? So I was going to do this ceremony, and, and so I was going to marry them, and I said, tell me about how you met. Tell me about who you are, like all this stuff, and they're, they're sharing these things with me, and we're laughing, and they're telling me stories. Uh, and it's, it's fun. We're having a good time. And then all of a sudden they get real quiet for a moment and they both look at each other kind of seriously. And then they look at me kind of seriously. And the, the groom, the future groom, he looks at me and he says, so Ryan, I just, I need you to know that we're devout Christian people. And I know you're a Christian pastor, but it, I think it still needs to be said that we really want this to be a biblical wedding. And so they told me. And I've learned over time, not just to nod my head when somebody says that. What I've learned over time, because when I, when I was a first, you know, being a pastor, the very first time I would have met somebody, I would have been like, yes, I know what you're talking about. You know, it. like, yes, I'm, I'm with you. I hear you. I know what you got, you're getting at. And I've realized I, I don't. So I started to ask, well, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, you know, it just feels like over time, marriage has become complicated and distorted and, and wedding ceremonies are weird and distorted and all this stuff. And so what we're asking you to do is if we want you to, to make this ceremony and to, to walk through this with us in the same way that they would have walked through a wedding ceremony in the Bible. And I paused and I looked at them, kind of taken aback for a second. I said, is that really what you want? And they said, yes. And then I said, well, okay. I looked at the groom and I said, so what you're gonna need to start doing is I need you to go back to your parents' house and you're gonna build an addition on their house. This is what you're gonna do. And I need you to construct this thing in such a way, this is where you guys are gonna now live. You're gonna take up the family name, family business and the things, and this is where you, you're becoming an extension of, of that family and she's joining you in the midst of that. And when you're done with that addition, I want you to come marching back into town. When you march back into town, that is gonna to signify to everybody involved here that the wedding moment has begun. This is gonna kick off a seven day celebration with all kinds of moments and things and feasting and all of this stuff culminating with one really special moment, and that's this, the entire wedding, not just you two, all of us, everybody in attendance, we are going to march back to the place that you will consummate the marriage. We're going to surround the building, cheer and beat on the walls while the two of you inside consummate the marriage. And then when you walk out and that's all done, and we are all gonna cheer and celebrate with you for the deal has been sealed. And I looked and I said, 
is that really what you want? And the, the bride looks at me and she says, when hell freezes over. And I said, okay, well, let's keep talking anyway. And let's have a conversation about this. I share this story with you because there's something that they were expressing in that moment that we actually all feel at different times. There's something they were thinking, a thought they had, maybe it was a belief, maybe it was a feeling, I'm not sure, whatever it was, there's some piece of it that I think each of us might identify with at some point here. Because, and don't get me wrong, I knew that they didn't really want to have that wedding that I was describing there. If they did, I was going to be incredibly shocked and that would have been a way better story to tell you, right? I knew that's not what they really wanted, but I, I, I get what they were saying. Because there's this thing that happens in our life where sometimes it feels like if we could just go back to a better time or a better era or a better moment, if we could just get back to when things weren't broken, when things weren't distorted, when things weren't as complicated, when something hadn't gotten twisted, if we could just go back to that, then we'd have the thing that we most want. Then things would be more simple. Then things would be less distorted. Then things would be less complicated. And that's what we're really, if we could just go back to that, that's what we're really after. I think everyone who knows what it is to be a human being has had that thought at some point in time. If you grew up in churches, you've probably heard that thought phrased as, if we could just get back to the early church, then we'd recapture what this thing really is, right? I hear this a lot and I don't judge it at all. That's part of why I got into ministry. I, did. I went to a Bible college at one point to study to be a pastor because I looked around me and I kept looking at churches thinking, just see, it feels like churches are like a mile wide and an inch deep. There's all this talk about verses and beliefs, but nobody's really wrestling with the things that God wants them to. And I had all these thoughts and beliefs and judgments about a whole bunch of stuff. And I thought, I want to go study the original languages and I want to go learn about this stuff so that we can do church the way that, you know, they did back when things were less distorted, less dot, dot, dot. And, 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 you know, I'll tell you this. This isn't in my message. Side note, I, when I was at Bible college, I wrote Glenn, who I'd never really met with before, even though I grew up here, an email. I'd been an intern here and I left. An email, two pages, 12-point, single-space font that basically said, I think what you're doing is about a mile wide and an inch deep and I'll be praying for you. And when I went to interview here a few years later to be a high school pastor, I just thought, man, please don't remember the email. First words out of his mouth. Ryan, you wrote me a quite lengthy email at one point in time. And he goes, I really appreciated your honesty. And I was like, well, buckle up. Here we go, right? <laughs> kind of crazy. That's part of why I got into this whole thing. That's part of why I wanted to do all of this. And then something happened. See, what happens when you really start to read your New Testament, not just as sayings where you read it a verse at a time to say, like, what is this for my life right now? But when you read it as, as an original writer writing to an original audience with specific situations that they were addressing and wrestling through, and when you read your New Testament and you look at it that way and you start to see what's actually written in it and what's actually being addressed in this whole thing, and when you study church history and you look at the first century church and all the things that they face, what you quickly start to realize is this utopian thing we're talking about, it didn't really exist. It was really complicated from the very beginning. Do you realize this? And I hope I'm not like bursting a bubble or, or shattering something in this particular moment. I just want to make it really honest. That's all. The early church, from the moment it began, was fraught with disagreements and frustrations and complexity. 
God had been essentially the story of the Jewish people as far as the Jewish people had known it forever. And all of a sudden, it is opened up. The story of Jesus Christ is opened up to the world at large, different cultures, backgrounds, beliefs, upbringings, understandings, like ethnicities, all of this stuff, all piling into the same place as of Acts chapter two and like a thousand people all ran, like come to, come to Christ in that single day and the church starts to blow up and it starts to expand. And, and then Paul is trying to take this message to all the places that weren't historically Jewish and getting involved there. And all these weird random people are sharing life together, trying to figure out how to do this. And it got so complicated from the very beginning. Acts is kind of a book of the history of the early church. By chapter 15, they have to form a council around, this thing's gonna tear itself apart from the inside out because people disagree so hard. What are we gonna do and how do we lead this thing forward? 15 chapters in. So it's been really complicated from the very beginning. There's all kinds of things to disagree with. If you return to the early church, you find a group of people who were struggling with many of the things that people are wrestling with now, just in a different time and in a different context. And that's really good news. The reason why that's really good news is because we don't read about some idealistic moment that happened a long time ago. We read about a real situation with real people and that happens to be what we are and what we find ourselves in right now. And so what they learned and what they went through and what they experienced and expressed becomes potent for our lives. Not as a disconnected thing that if we could just go back as something that wants to make its way into our right now. It becomes very, very powerful, friends. Much of the New Testament, like I said, is written amidst all of this complexity and diversity, but there's something they knew. There's something they got right. And there's something that they understood that allowed them to be the vibrant expression that they are now. And that thing that they understood is this, Christ had united them together. It's a huge thing. What they understood was that Christ had united them together. You're sitting here right now in a room full of people that you would not otherwise hang out with, associate with, or no. Not all of your circles would cross. Not all of us would find ourselves going like, let's all go hang out on a Sunday together. You're bound together in this moment because Christ has united you together. This is the core of what it is to be in the body of Christ, what core of what it is to be the church. And this isn't just a past tense moment. This is something he did and is doing and continues to do and will do. That's a powerful thing you share in this common experience of being united in Christ. Galatians chapter three, verse 28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Jesus Christ. What he's not saying there is there's no differences in people. What he's saying is that there's something that amidst all of that unites us even deeper. That would cause us to become a church, to be a church, to be a part of this big, crazy venture that is the body of Christ. You are united in Christ. The early church understood this. They began and continued, and we are here still because they knew that they were a people who were united in Christ. And let us make no mistake in this particular moment. Christ did the uniting. I want you to hear that. Christ did the uniting. He acted in in such a way. He loves you. And he loves you, and he loves you, and he loves you. I I could keep pointing around the room for the rest of this. Like, he did something specific in each of us, but the the same love he has for you is the same love he has for you is the same love he has for you. And and God, right, at, at large, when we look at the Father, God extends forgiveness and pours out the newness of life through Christ to you. 
and God extends forgiveness and pours out the newness of life in Christ to, to you. There's this collective experience that has happened that's made its way into us, that's transformed us in such a way that whether we always understand it or not, whether we know correctly how to work with this thing or understand or believe or read or whatever it all is or not, something has happened here that's so powerful that now when we look at each other, we can say, I see you. I don't know everything about you. I don't even know if we even agree all the time or if we'd even like to be roommates. But you're my brother. You're my sister. We're united in Christ in something very deep and very powerful, and he has done that work. And so this is the resounding nature of his love among us, pulling us together in this continuous kind of grace. We share in a deep and grounding transformational experience, friends, because Christ has done it. And that has the potential to bring power and peace into the midst of our very complicated lives. That's why the church is such a beautiful thing. It's why I'm passionate about it, right? That's what Christ has done, but... Can we pause for two seconds and acknowledge that that's what he's done? Do you know there's something we're supposed to do too? Do you know we have a role in some of this as well? Paul writes to an early church in the book of Ephesians and in chapter four, verse three, he says this, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Writing to us, he says, for me, to you, to all of us, those who occupy church, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Let me, let me paraphrase that for you. Striving towards unity doesn't just happen. Maintaining a bond requires effort. There's something that we engage with. There's something that we wrestle with. This is what I think the early church understood because the truth is they arrived in the midst of complexity, in the midst of adversity, both outside the church and inside the church, in the midst of argument and disagreement and theological backgrounds and misunderstandings and all kinds of different things. And yet, there's this quality that they held onto, that they lived out of, that allowed them to overcome some of these moments to continue to be the thriving message of Jesus Christ, this thriving expression of Christ, of whom is their head, our head, our authority, the church. And, and this quality is this, it's a Greek word found in the New Testament and it's called pros lumbano. I want you to say that with me because I'd love for you to remember this if at all possible. Ready, one, two, three, pros lumbano. Pros lumbano is sometimes used in the New Testament. Okay, it's used in some different ways. So you've probably seen this word in moments that you didn't even realize it. In different moments, it was translated a little bit differently. Sometimes it's used to refer to pulling someone close to yourself or drawing near to them. Either way, closing that gap of distance where there's space between you, closing that. Matthew 16, there's a moment where we see this. And I'm using, I wanted to share this one with you in particular because this is a moment of disagreement. This is a moment of complexity. Jesus is sitting with his disciples in Matthew 16 and he tells them, I am gonna go and I am gonna be, you know, they're gonna arrest me and I'm gonna be crucified and I'm gonna rise again on the third day. And Peter, one of his disciples, looks at Jesus and takes issue with this particular moment. It's one of the few passages in the Bible where we see a disciple, and this is the word the New Testament uses, rebuke Jesus. Peter takes Jesus aside and he goes, no, not you. I'm sorry, but you're mistaken, which is a bold move for a disciple with his rabbi, right? Bold move to go take Jesus aside. It says that Peter drew close to Jesus and rebuked him. The word proslambano is in there, not for the rebuke, but for the drawing close, right? Jesus says this and then Peter goes and closes the distance and goes, I don't want, this is never gonna happen to you. And I think part of what Peter's saying here is like, I'd never let this happen to you, Jesus. 
pulls him close, closes that distance, closes that gap. Proslambano is also used to talk about welcoming somebody. Acts chapter 28, Paul, he's talking about his missionary journeys. The apostle Paul essentially took the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of just Jerusalem, outside of just Israel and the Jewish nation, and he took it to the Gentile nations. The word Gentile is a biblical word that essentially means every other culture on the planet that's not Jewish. Anybody who's not Jewish was a Gentile. And so Paul goes to all these different places, all these different cities and all these different locations, and he starts planning churches. Much of the New Testament is his letters written to them. On one of his journeys, he details this in Acts 28, he goes to a place called the island of Malta. And they stop there. And Paul says that the people, the natives on the island of Malta, proslambanoed him. They, they took him in. What your Bible says, they welcomed him and showed him hospitality and great kindness. And not just him, but the people who were with him. Think of what that word means there. It's not just to be like, welcome, we said hi. Like it's not the greeter at the front end of Walmart. Do you know what I mean? They welcomed him. They they prepared a meal. They got out their best. They, they cared for them, gave them shelter, like treated them like one of their own, right? Pros Limbano. Pros Limbano can also be used to talk about receiving someone. In the New Testament book of Philemon, if you've never read a whole book of the Bible, start with Philemon. It's one chapter, one page. You'll get there real fast. And then you can say, I've read one book. Philemon, uh, in this book, Paul is sending a man named Onesimus, who is a slave in a household, in biblical times at this particular point, back to the house he was a slave in at one point. Imagine the complexity there. Imagine how Onesimus might be feeling. Paul writes to them and says, I don't want you to receive this person as a bond servant, and I don't want you to receive this person as just like an individual of your household. He says, I want you to go further than that. I want you to, to see this person and receive this person as your brother, as family. And then Paul, in the passage, says, if you consider me your partner, then Proslimbano, he says, receive him as you would receive me. Think of the power of that word there, proslimbano, as it's used, and Paul uses it. Think of the depth of what he's saying. It's a powerful word, isn't it? This is something that the New Testament writers understood. This word is so powerful, friends, and it can be defined as to take someone to yourself, to draw near, to welcome someone into your home, your space, or your life. This is this word, Proslambano. And it's powerful, not just because this is what people did. It's powerful because this is a word that, that essentially God expresses to us in a really, really powerful way. He took us near. He draws us in. Think about this. The Son of God, right? Member of the Trinity, holy, perfect, all-powerful God became flesh, clothed himself in flesh. This is what we celebrate every year at Christmas as Jesus Christ was born among us, right? Think of the power of that moment. If you love it, it's just a nativity story. Go deeper. An all-perfect, all-powerful, all-holy God clothes, him, clothes himself in humanity. What is the powerful message that gets declared there? I make my way what? To you. You don't have to climb a ladder. You don't have to go to a temple. You don't have to go and sacrifice a thing and do all this stuff. I make my way to you. I close that gap and that distance so that we can be close. And then look at how Jesus lived. What did he do? Who did he hang out with? The Bible says he hung out with sinners and tax collectors. He gets accused of these type of things. So many of the messages he teaches aren't in the synagogues, aren't in the temple or in a holy place, but often on hillsides and communities. So many healings and things outside of what would have been considered the religious context, as though the holy had no issue entering what we would think of as the profane. It's like God is saying through Jesus Christ, I'm closing that. I proslambana, right? 
drawing you close, pulling you in. This is before there was ever a cross and ever a resurrection. This is just the life of Christ demonstrated in the incarnation of Jesus and how he lived and what he did. It's a powerful expression of proslambano. And then Jesus welcomed not just the Jewish people who had this historic story and path, but what's one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the entire world, as though through Jesus, God says, my eyes and my scope is so big, it's all of it. Every single person, everyone here, as he closes in, draws near with us in Christ. You see how powerful this is? This is prosimbano. This is who God is and what God has done with us and on our behalf so that we can sit here and be like, wow, this has reached me and impacted me and transform communities and lives. And I'm a part of a 2,000 year venture now called the church because we are united in this thing that is because of who God is. Friends, really, really powerful word. And here's what I wanna share with you. The Greek word, proslimbano, is what in English speakers, translators would translate as the word acceptance. I'm gonna say that again in case you missed it. When we say in Greek the word proslimbano, it is the exact same word that in English gets translated as acceptance. And I want you to take everything you know about this word and let those two things merge. I want you to hold a New Testament understanding of the word acceptance here this morning, because it is a very, very powerful, powerful thing, right? When we tell somebody you are accepted, here's what we're saying. We're saying we pro slimbano you. What we're saying is you have a place with me just as you have a place with God. That's what it is. It's to make a space with you where you let them draw close, where the distance gets closed, where there doesn't have to be a gap or a separation or a thing and you pull them as close as could possibly. This is what it is to give acceptance away. It's the same thing that God gives us because it's who he is. Now, we've been talking about this for a little bit. And so I wanna just take a moment to ask you a couple of questions. You don't need to give these answers to me or even the person next to you. I just want you to think for a second about this. Does acceptance of others come easy for you? Just think about it. Does acceptance of others come easy for you? Is it difficult? If it's easy, well, what makes it easy? If it's difficult, what makes it difficult? Who is there in your life that you find really easy to accept? To make a space for? To draw near to? Let them know that they have a place with you? Who is there in your life where you find it most difficult, where you find it the hardest to do that? See, for some of us, we can look and say, well, here's how I wrestle with this with other people. For others, I think we might say, you know, the hardest part for me isn't wrestling with acceptance of other people. The hardest part for me is actually wrestling with God's acceptance of me. Is that you? Is the hardest part trusting that God actually accepts you? What makes that so difficult? If that's you, what makes you have to return to learn that lesson again and again and again, right? I don't ask those questions because there's a right answer or a wrong answer. I ask those questions because I want you to take an honest look at how you wrestle with this thing, about how you live out this moment or this thing. 
Because the truth is, for I'm going to wager every single person in here, at some facet of our lives, acceptance is complicated. It's complex. Sometimes it's as easy as breathing, right? There are certain people in our life we don't even have to think about it. We're like, of course they have a place with me. I've never even had to think about it. I instinctively pull them close, right? There's a mom in the road here. This, right? It's instinctive. You can do this. There's a part of you that just gets this, feels this. It's like natural. There's other people, though, where you're like, oh, let's keep some distance, <laughs> you know? There's other people, or even if you look, you're like, should I draw? I don't know. I feel conflicted and contemplative, and I'm not quite sure about all of this and how this whole thing takes place or plays out. Friends, this is why, in Ephesians, this is why he says it takes effort to maintain the bond of peace. This is why it takes effort to offer this. Acceptance isn't something that just passively happens. Christ has done the work of uniting us, but we have a role. We have a responsibility in the same thing too, that we have to actively live out, engage in, wrestle with, and just stand and ground ourselves in. And it's this, that giving for us acceptance, giving that thing away, right? And here's the truth. Here's the thing that I'd love to, to share with you here in this particular moment. Acceptance isn't based on the other person. I know that might seem complicated, it might seem a little inflammatory, but I, I use God as my model for this. Acceptance isn't based on the other person. Acceptance and whether to give it or live it or not is entirely up to you and what your heart desires to do. Because that's how God does it. That's how God engages this thing. I want you to turn in your Bibles as we continue here. This will be the last passage we turn to, Romans chapter 15. We're just gonna look at verse seven for the rest of this time here. Uh, Romans 15, seven says this, uses the word proslamano right off the bat, accept one another, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. I'll read it again, short verse. Accept one another, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. When Paul writes Romans, he writes it to a church where there's a large group, group, large group of Greek slash Roman individuals and a smaller group of people who are historically Jewish and they were all trying to occupy the same space, share in being what it is to be the church, the local church, the body of Christ. And it was getting really complicated. And the reason why is because the people who grew up historically Jewish, they grew up where it's like, you need to be separate from all of these moments. There's unclean foods and there's practices. They all had to be circumcised in order to be signs that like as the sign and symbol of a covenant that meant that they were connected with God in this way. They had all of these things that they'd historically practiced and held dear. The Romans didn't have that. What the Romans had grown up around was in Roman society, often just to engage in commerce, right? So if you wanted to sell goods or trade for meat or food or, or you know, vegetables, whatever it was, even water at times, you had to go make sacrifice to a Roman God in order to even get permission to do this type of thing. And so what would happen is there was all this food and stuff that had been made and sacrificed as an offering to a Roman God in a temple someplace or in some kind of official way that now was seen as like, this is food that had been sacrificed or food that had been dedicated to these false gods. And the Romans were like, big deal, everything is. It's all around us. Like we just eat it. We don't, like, we don't have any qualms about this. This is how life works. The Jewish people are like, are you out of your minds? To do that is to give tacit approval of the worship of these other gods. To do that is to ultimately consume something that was offered as a sacrifice to, like, to another god. This is an abomination and they're at each other's throats. They're mad at each other. They're disagreeing and the church has all this tension wanting to rip itself apart from the inside out. There are other tensions that exist outside the church. This one just happens to be super strong inside it at this point. When Paul writes in Romans, he's writing to this very audience. In Romans 14, he begins by talking about this food issue. 
And he basically says, look, there's going to be those who are weak in faith. And this is his verbiage. He's going to be those who are weak in faith, who for whatever reason, like, need their ethic and need the thing that they're doing so that they don't, like, is to help them keep their faith in Christ is more or less how this goes. And then there are those who are going to believe that this is what God has that God's not hung up on that and that Jesus is the one who makes me righteous, not this food, and I trust that, and I'll eat what I want to. And he goes, so let's not judge the person who's weak in faith and let's not favor the person who's strong. Let's figure this out. And then by the time he gets to chapter 15 here in verse seven, what he says is, he's acknowledging, like, I don't think this is all just gonna magically work itself out. I don't think we're all gonna come to a spot where everybody's like, cool, we're good. We all agree now and we're moving on. And so what does he say? This is like the climax of this whole whole argument, this whole moment where he says, look, amidst all of this, here's your path. Here's what I want you to do. Romans 15, verse seven. I'll read it again now in context. Accept one another, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God, right? This is what he says. It's precisely because there was a disagreement. It's precisely because there was fighting. It's precisely because there were different competing ideologies and tensions that he says, this is your path as a church. Accept one another, just as Christ has accepted you. And then he takes it a step further. He's like, because that's what brings praise to God. When Christ accepted you, it brought God glory and praise. When you do the same, it'll do the same. Because he is accepting, you are accepted, extend it to one another, right? Think about what we know about that word proslambano. What's he telling them? Make space for each other. These people that are frustrating you, violating you, whatever the thing is, whatever your right word is, make space in that moment. I need to put a caveat here. If somebody's physically harming you, if somebody's doing something destructive in your life, this isn't a call to abandon all boundaries. That's another conversation for another time. This is a generalized way of looking at all people, all of life, making space, especially in a church context, right? Accepting so that they know that, not just because you did it in your head, but so that it's evident to them that they know that. That's a beautiful thing to ask for and a hard thing to live out, isn't it? Is it easy for you to make space for people who disagree with you and sometimes the thing they're doing actually seems inflammatory to you? Is that easy? It's not for me. It's a beautiful thing for Paul to ask for and a very hard thing to live out, but he, he does. He asks this. You know, I started understanding this a little differently recently. My daughter and I, we got in an argument two weeks ago. I love her, love her so much, but she loves to argue. My parents though, to be fair, I grew up, and my parents would always look at me and go, Ryan, you should be a lawyer because you just love to argue and we find it exhausting. And I would say, what? I'm just trying to have a conversation and I never understood. I understand now. <laughs> I have a child who's cut from the same cloth in that same way. And there's a part where I'm just like, oh man, which if you're a parent, I guess you probably know in some way, shape or form what this could be like. Right, where you're like, that's what it's like. My parents had a lot more patience than I understood. We got an argument and essentially it was this. I, I told her, I want you to clean your room because there was this choice I needed to make where I either needed to condemn the house or we needed to take care of it, right? <laughs> and, and it had been going on for some time and I'd said for a few days now, I need you to do that. And she's like, okay, and then didn't do it, didn't do it. So finally I get to the spot where I'm like, you're gonna do that now, please, because you've had a lot of days, but I need you to do this now. And at that moment, she turns to her favorite pastime, my favorite pastime, and that's like when I was a kid, it's to argue this thing. And so she gets mad 
And she immediately starts talking about her sister. Well, my sister doesn't do this, and my sister doesn't that, and her room's not always clean, and you guys don't always make... And I said, look, I'm not concerned about your sister. This is a conversation between me and between you. That's between me and her, and we'll work that out separately. And I get that. So then she realized that wasn't going to work. And so she goes, can you define what clean means? <laughs> She's brilliant, by the way. Love this child. She goes, can you define what clean means? Like, what exactly is clean? What is this? And I say, well, it's like this. And she looks and she goes, I don't understand. And I think she thinks if she keeps saying, I don't understand and making me define words out after a while, this will go away. Finally, I'm like, I'm not gonna keep defining words. And then she goes, well, dad, sometimes you don't clean your room and nobody's forcing you to do it. And I was like, well, that is a really good point that she just brought up because that happens sometimes. And I was like, wait, she doesn't pay rent. No, I need you to go clean your room. And then she shifted to how she was actually hungry and this wasn't the right time to do that and that she needed to eat first to give, like, so her body could have what it needed so that she could go do the work of cleaning her room eventually. And I said, uh, no, this went on for an hour before I was finally so frustrated and tired where I'm like, I'm done talking about this. I'm done working our way through this. Go clean your room. And she was frustrated and she's worked up at that point and she starts to cry and she's like, okay, fine. And she goes walking away and she gets about 10 feet away from me and she suddenly pauses, tears in her eyes. She turns around, she looks at me and she goes, dad, can I have a hug? Oh, look at you guys, you weren't there. <laughs> look at that. I bristled in that moment. You know what this is like if you're a parent, right? I bristled in that moment. I was like, because my answer is no, because I need some space because I'm exhausted and frustrated and all of the things. And then this word, prosimbano, this word acceptance flashed into my head in that moment because I've been studying it and thinking about this. And it comes into my head and I realize, wait, I don't know if I want to do it this way. And I normally would. This is normally how I, I would normally be like, no, I need, I need a moment. I'll circle back around. But I was like, no, I need a moment here. And that's normally what I would say. And I stopped and it started to change in my head and move and change, into my, and change in my heart. And here's the thing. I didn't like that that was happening. Can I tell you why I didn't like that that was happening? I, I didn't like that me saying, yes, I'm going to give her a hug is like me. Say, it felt like I was saying this whole last hour is okay. Like I didn't like that. I didn't like that for me to say like, yeah, get over here is almost to say like, look, let's just ignore everything that just happened. Everything's fine and kind of skirt all of that and it's all good. And I'm just going to turn a blind eye to every moment and everything. I didn't like any of that. And so I wanted to say, no, go clean your room. And you know what stopped me from doing that? You know what stopped me from standing in that space? And I think this is something I'm learning about who God is with us. What stopped me from that is, you know, I care about that. I, I want her to know that parts of that last hour weren't okay. I, part, I want her to know that like, you know, it is kind of exhausting to go through this and that sometimes we do need to all take responsibility in the house and do the things that we need to do. There's so many things I want her to know, but you know what I want her to know more than any of that? I want her to know that she has a place with me because she experiences it and never has to question it. And I want that more than anything else. And so regardless of all my other desires and wants and things, I just paused and I said, sure, kiddo, get over here. And I gave her a hug and I said, I love you. This last hour has been really hard, but I want you to know I love you. Now go clean your room. <laughs> and she did. And I think... This is what Jesus does with us, guys. 
I'm learning some of these things as a parent that don't come very natural to me all the time. I think this is what God does with us. We always look as though there's all this thing like my daughter needed to get right, to do right, to be the right thing before I'm willing to pull her close. The incarnation demonstrates before a cross and before a resurrection that God pulls us in and makes his way to us before any of that ever occurs. He offers proslimbano to the world in a powerful kind of way that draws us all in so that we can see where he does his best work. This is what acceptance is. This is why it's such a powerful unifier of the church. This is why it's the effort we put in to maintain the bond of peace because we shouldn't all be able to do this. We shouldn't. I promise you, we go start talking to everybody in here, you're gonna be amazed at all the places you disagree. You're gonna be amazed at all the different ideologies that exist in this room, I promise you. I get to have a front row seat to this sometimes. You're gonna be amazed at what some people believe that you thought nobody else would and what others believe that you couldn't imagine that they believed and what this happened. You're gonna be amazed at people's journeys and how they've made sense of life and in different moments. And you're gonna wonder how all roads lead to Rome. And I'm gonna say they don't, but Christ unites us. And he's loving us forward in a way that makes us his unique and weird and complicated body called the church in which he is our head and bigger than all of these other things as he pulls us close. And the thing that we do to maintain the bond is we just keep dishing out acceptance, which isn't to say, let me pause, sometimes friends, we get acceptance confused with approval. Sometimes we make our acceptance contingent upon our agreement. They're different things. I don't always agree with my daughter, right? I don't always approve of everything my daughter does. And to be fair, if she were in here, she'd be like, I don't always agree with and approve of you either. And that's true. But she's my kid. She has a place with me because I accept her. She doesn't have to question that. It's just true because it's who I am. It's true, friends, because it's who God is. He hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. Tax collectors robbed people. Do you know that? That's essentially what a tax collector did. They just kind of legally and illegally robbed people who were often less fortunate than themselves. We would look at that and be like, that's, that's not okay. That's a terrible thing. Jesus ate dinner with these people. I don't think he was saying, I approve of this message. I want you to keep living your life this way. But what did he do? You have a place with me though. Pulls them close. Draws them near, has dinner with them. Hangs out with them to the point where he's accused and and criticized by the religious establishment in a world where there's plenty to disagree about, plenty of behaviors and beliefs we might differ on, plenty of anger that's been pent up and bottled up about how the world ought to be or is or isn't. Acceptance is powerful. And it becomes a powerful demonstration of the love of Christ that would be bigger than most of this stuff, bigger than all of this stuff. To unite us together is the powerful expression that is the body of Christ, his church. Friends, what if we, think about this for a second, as we move to a close here this morning, what if we accepted one another the way that Christ accepted us? Romans 15, what if we did that? Can you think about that for a second? What would that be like? What if we accepted one another the way Christ has accepted us? If you're wrestling with that, think about the question. What did you have to do to get Christ to accept you? What did you have to do? What did I have to do? Nothing. The world didn't suddenly become the right kind of place so that Christ would make his home among us and dwell in our midst. It was the heart of God who chose to do that because that's who he is. What would happen if because he is, we are in that same powerful way? 
You see this? And I know that some of you might be thinking, well, no, I had to accept Christ into my life. And upon accepting Christ into my life and my heart, then I was accepted too. And, and what I would say is what you're talking about, that moment is a very important, very powerful moment, but you're talking about the doctrine of salvation here. You're talking about Jesus Christ dying upon the cross for the forgiveness of sins and rising again so that we might rise with him in the newness of life and being folded in and accepting that for our lives. I get that. That's powerful and important. Don't let that go. But it is different than acceptance. He offered acceptance at the moment of incarnation in a powerful way. The moment Christ became flesh, that predates a cross and a resurrection. He offered that so he could pull people in, and I quote again, so that people could see him doing his best work and then say, I want that in my life, in my heart. I want to know you. His acceptance is absolutely powerful because he is accepting, we are accepted. Because he gives it away, we get to receive it. Because he makes it known through the loudest microphone on the planet through beginning through the incarnation and culminating through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we get to trust it and build our lives on it and ground ourselves in it. And Romans tells us that offering acceptance that way brings God praise, it lifts him up. So what if we accepted one another the way that Christ has accepted us? Friends, if you don't know how to do that, it's do this. Treat people in a way that lets them know they have a place with you. Start here and bring it to your lives at large. Treat people in a way that lets, uh, lets them know that they have a place with you. Uh, in closing, I, I want you to do something for a moment. I want you to look to your side, pick any side and just look. And I want you to see whoever it might be is sitting next to you or across from you or on the aisle from you, whatever that looks like. Look to the other side. Look in front of you and see the back of whoever's heads you see that are there that maybe you know or maybe you don't. I know it's weird when you know people are staring at the back of your head. I hope you did your hair, <laughs> right? I tell you to look around. I know some of us throw our back out or get weird or something like that, so we don't, but just the whole room. You'd see all of it. They're accepted. They have a place with you. Do you know this? You are accepted. You have a place with them. If you embrace that with your heart the way Christ has embraced it with you, what would that change for you? How would you treat one another? How would you talk to one another? How would you stop talking to one another? <laughs> How would you engage? What would you say? How would you act? All of those things. Now, I know I'm asking you a bunch of questions right now and it's tempting to just go like, oh, yeah, that's interesting and then walk out of here. Can I ask you to wrestle with this? I can't give you one answer on what to do with this because for each of us, acceptance looks a little bit different. We all wrestle with it in our own way, but I can ask you to wrestle with it. I can ask you to think through these things. Who do you need to make a place for? What would it look like to make a place in your life for someone else to accept them the way Christ has accepted you, friends? Let people get close enough to you in your life that they can see God doing his best work so that when they see the goodness and the truth that is in you, it might be compelling enough to be the goodness and the truth that becomes real for them. Not because it's fake, not because it's contrived, because it's what Christ is actually doing.
And when the entire body of Christ does this, as the collective representation that is the church, we live and love loudly in the name of Jesus Christ. And it becomes a powerful expression. It is what the early church understood that is our opportunity now. And my hope and my prayer is that it would be true of each and every one of us, that it would be true of me, that it would be true of you. So that Tucson, Arizona, the community of Oro Valley, Miranda, all the surrounding areas, this whole thing, that they might come to know that they have a place with God. Let's pray. God, we come before you today, and I know we struggle with acceptance, but we love that it seems like you don't. (laughs) We love that you draw us near and that you come close to us, Lord. And so, God, in the places in our lives that we don't make space, can you open our eyes to that? And not in judgment or guilt, but in compassion for the other. Lord, can you open our eyes in the places of ourselves where we withhold that, your acceptance that you give us from our own selves, Lord? Can, Can grace flood this place here? Can you meet us in the midst of our lives in such a way that we wrap our heads and hearts around that in a beautiful way here this morning, this evening, whenever it is that we choose to engage all of this? And God, unite this church in a powerful way and give us the energy to do the work of accepting one another so that we can be vibrant and strong in the love of Christ for a community that needs it. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.